0: So one of my favorite shows um, in the early 2000s was 24. Anybody familiar with the show 24? Okay, not as many hands as I expected. Yeah, so Jack Bauer is the main guy in 24, and Jack Bauer was the toughest guy on television. He would not only discover terrorist plots, but he would also expose corruption, he would take out the bad guys, and he would save thousands of lives all within a 24-hour period. It's amazing. The guy never went to the restroom, never slept or ate. He said, able to do all of this in 24 hours. And I remember one season in particular, there was uh, an instance where there was corruption throughout. And as, there, as time goes on, as these 24 hours continue to go on, they realize that the corruption goes higher and higher and higher. And they realize that the vice president, who eventually became the president of the United States, uh, that his entire administration was corrupt. And this show, guys, this show slayed. Everyone loved 24. 24 was one of the biggest shows. What, what I've recognized is that that theme of corruption at the highest levels—that theme sells. I mean, you can swing a dead cat in any direction. You're going to find that there are uh, movies and shows of corruption, be it government corruption or corporate corruption. Danielle and I—we just finished a show last night, and it was all about governmental corruption. it's just one of many shows out there that have that theme. It's even true, that theme, in in kids' movies. We, We have several kids, so we watch a lot of movies, and they enjoy movies. But what we see is that in movies, even like Moana or Aladdin or Frozen or Encanto or Zootopia, you name it, there's this idea of push back against authority, and your life will go well. The authority that is above you, it's not for your ultimate good. Push back against it, and that will lead to your flourishing. Why is that? Why is it that we're so prone to push against authority? Well, I think at least in part it's because that in Adam, we all rebelled against God's good authority. You see that early on in Genesis. And now, because of the fall, we're naturally all prone to rebellion. So it just comes natural for us, even rebellion against good authority. And so now, any opportunity to question that authority kind of scratches that itch of rebellion for us. Now, I want to submit to you today that our relationship with authority does not need to be a tense one. I think what we'll see in the text today, as Julius Kim, a theology professor at Westminster in California, puts it, that because our relationship with God has been changed through Christ, our relationships with those around us must change for Christ. So because our relationship with God has been changed through Christ, the relationships that we have with those around us, including authority structures, must be changed for Christ. And so when our relationships are changed for Christ, what we see is that loving authority and dignified submission, these two things are actually good and godly. Loving authority and dignified submission are good and godly things. Now we've been going through the book of Colossians. And I've given you the context each time. I'm going to do it again. Hopefully, it just kind of beats into your brain so that you know that when we open the book of, of Colossians, it was written around 662 AD. Hopefully, that date sticks right in there. And that also, when Paul wrote this letter, he was in prison and he also wrote the letter of, to the Ephesians around the same time. So, what we'll see is that in this text, particularly, Ephesians 5 and 6 are almost like a parallel passage to the latter half of Colossians 3. Because Paul is writing them right around the same time. These things were on his mind. The theme throughout the whole book of Colossians, if you remember something about the whole book of Colossians, this is the theme. The fullness and sufficiency of Christ. The fullness and sufficiency of Christ. Now, chapters one and two, so Colossians is four chapters. The first half, Paul is really unpacking the theological argument. He's addressing some, this heresy that was going on in Colossae known as the Colossian heresy. And what that was essentially was syncretism, taking all these other ideas, pagan practices, whether it's Jewish, synch- or Jewish ceremonialism or angel worship or the philosophies of men or asceticism, whatever these things are that were going on in Colossae and synchronizing them with Christ and saying, what you need, yeah, is Christ, but also bring these other things in so that you can really have a full understanding of who Christ is. And Paul says, no, Christ is sufficient. You don't need these other things. Christ is actually the fullness of God. If you want to know who God is, then look at Christ and you will see a full picture of God. You don't need these other practices and these other beliefs to understand who God really is. Christ is sufficient. But then in chapters 3 and 4, so Tyler uh, preached the first 17 verses of chapter 3 last week, and we're looking at the rest of chapter 3 and the first verse in chapter 4 today. In these latter two chapters, Paul has already established theological framework, the theological foundation, and now he's getting into the practical outworkings of that theology. and That's just kind of typical uh, Paul in the way that he writes. And So in light, in these last two chapters, in light of Christ being the fullness of God and being sufficient for salvation, he gives us some ramifications of that. So the first 17 verses of chapter 3, we see individual ramifications. So how does it affect you individually? And what he says, as we look at those first 17 verses, he says, you individually seek what is above. You see that in the first verse there. Put to death what is earthly in you, verse five. Put off the old self, verse nine. Put on the new self, compassionate hearts, kindness, humility, meekness, patience, bearing with one another, forgiving one another. You put on love. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. You see that in verse 15. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. Verse 16. Then we see in verse 17, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus. So these are all personal ramifications of the theology that Paul has really laid the groundwork for in those first two chapters. And now, after laying the groundwork for that, and then seeing these are the personal implications, he now talks about the relational implications for your relationships outside of yourself. So we see in in the text today that we'll look at some relational ramifications of wives, husbands, children, fathers, parents, bondservants, and masters. Now, I'm just going to be honest with you. The difficult thing about a text like the one we're looking at today is that it is so straightforward. I mean, he literally says, wives, do this. Husbands, do this, don't do that. Children, do that. I mean, it's so straightforward, you can almost just read it and be like, "All right, go and do it. And in one sense, you can. I mean, God's word is, is perfect. However, Hopefully, as we unpack it, you'll see the value of of doing that. But here's something that we need to keep in mind, is that it's one thing to know something. It's another thing to do it. And the Puritans, in fact, would actually say that you really don't know something until it impacts the way that you live. You might think that you know it, but if it doesn't impact the way that you live, then, friend, you don't really know it. And so as we look at today's text, it is so simple. But sometimes, unpacking the simplicity can help us really live in light of those simple commands. And so if you look in your bulletin, you'll see an outline. And even though Paul breaks it up in six categories right there, I think each category is kind of connected to each other. So those first two categories, wives and husbands, we see a marriage relationship. So he's addressing marriage relationships. That's the first point in your bulletin. The second one, with children and fathers, is the parental relationships. And the last one is work relationships. So marriage relationships, parental relationships, and work relationships. And now each of these, if you notice, each of these have a submission authority dynamic. We'll unpack that as we go on. But as Michael Lawrence has said about this, this text, he says that loving authority and dignified submission should characterize our relationships if we are Christians. If we're Christians, loving authority and dignified submission should characterize the relationships that we have. And so, after spending 17 verses explaining the the personal ramifications, personal ramifications of the gospel and right doctrine, Paul now moves on to the relational implications. So if you would, uh, look at Colossians 3, if you're turning in your Bible, you'll see Galatians, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians. If you're using one of the blue provided Bibles that are near you, that's going to be on page 984. And if you don't have a Bible, then friend, just consider that one that you're picking up, that blue one, consider that yours. We'd love for you to take that home, read it, and be encouraged by it. So let's look at Colossians. We're looking at chapter 3, and we're starting in verse 18. <coughs> This is God's word. Wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. Fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Bond servants, obey in everything those who are your earthly masters. knowing that you also have a master in heaven. Father, as we look at this text, we ask that you would help us see the simplicity in it, but Holy Spirit, help us to live it out. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. So that first point, marriage, relationships. So Paul begins with the most foundational of all relationships, marriage. Marriage. And, and that makes sense that he would begin there, because if you, if you think about it, in Genesis, after God created, he saw that it was not good for man to be alone. After each thing that he created, he said, it is good, it is good, it is good. But he realized that it's not good for man to be alone. Adam needed help with the work that God had given him. We see in Genesis 2, verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I' will make him a helper fit for him. And notice, God didn't give Adam parents. He didn't give him children. He gave Adam a wife. And so a few verses later, commenting on that wife, we see that God calls her his helper." Genesis 2:24. "Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And so Adam was told, he was tasked by God to oversee the garden, to work it and to keep it. And what we see is that Adam needed help. He was not able to accomplish this on his own. Now notice, this is interesting, when God does create Eve, he doesn't restate the job description to Eve. He entrusts Adam as prophet in that garden to take God's word and faithfully relay it to his wife. Adam was to obey what God told him. He was to relay what God had told him to Eve. And then he was to lead Eve to obey what God had told him. So he's to obey it, he's to relay it, and then he's to lead Eve into obeying it as well. Now Eve was to receive God's word from Adam. She was to submit to God's word. And she was to help Adam obey what God had said to work and to keep the garden faithfully. He could not do that on his own. He needed a helper. And Eve's responsibility is to help him obey God's word faithfully. And so, in verse 18, we see right off the get-go, Paul is addressing the wives in Colossae. He says, wives, submit to your husbands as is fitting in the Lord. Now, now, friends, to our modern ears, this first verse, verse 18, is probably the most difficult for us to receive, just right off the bat. It's probably the most uncomfortable verse in this passage. We hear, submit, And we hear words like help as demeaning, as inferiority. If you are the one to submit or you are the one to help, it can feel like I have no say, that my voice is gone, my input isn't valued. But let me just say a few things about that. So first, submitting or helping does not equal inferiority. It's simply, it it can't. Jesus Christ himself submitted his will to the Father. As a man, he submitted his earthly will to the Father's plan. And so to submit does not equal inferiority. And furthermore, the Holy Spirit is called our helper. And so to say that to be a helper is to be inferior or is demeaning, then that would say that the Holy Spirit is inferior to the Son and to the Father. We don't say that. Helper is a good and godly title. Second, so that's the first thing I want to caveat with, is that inferiority, um, or excuse me, submitting and helping, that does not mean inferiority. Second, wives submitting to their husbands is fitting to the Lord. We see that in verse 18, the second part of it. Because for those in the Lord, Christians, it's fitting to show dignified submission. Now, why is that? Because our Lord himself did that. I already touched on that, but, but Jesus Christ is our example for one who submitted himself. And he was perfectly righteous. It's a good thing to do. He submitted himself to the Father. Now, notice he didn't submit himself to the Father blindly. He didn't submit begrudgingly. But he did it in a trusting and dignified way. And so now those in Christ, those who are Christians, we show that kind of submission to Christ. We trust him. Not blindly. Not in a begrudging way. But we submit to him in a dignified way. And then the third thing is that there is a kind of submission that is not honoring and is not fitting to the Lord. So this is the caveat that that can be used for this section, but also for the other sections as well. and, And we'll touch on it in each section. But there is a kind of submission that is not fitting to the Lord. And that's submitting to sin. And so wives, you're called to submit to the husband that God has kindly given you, insofar as that submission does not lead you to sin. Does that make sense? Christ is your highest authority. If your husband is asking you to do something that is contrary to what Christ would have you do, then you no longer follow your husband, you follow Christ. You submit in a way that is fitting to the Lord. You're not, hear me, you are not called to submit to abuse. You are not called to aid in sin. You are not called to follow blindly down a destructive road. You are called to submit to good authority. So here's an extreme example. It's an extreme example, but I'm hoping that it gets the point across. So every time you fly, those in here who have flown, you know that you are submitting to authority. There's an assigned seat that you go and sit in. And then there are little lights that you see that tell you when you can get up from your seat and when you cannot get up from your seat. When the fasten seatbelt light is on, you have to stay seated. And you also know that you can't just waltz right into the cockpit and chat it up with the the pilot and the co-pilot. There are rules that you know that you have to submit to if you're going to fly on this plane. Now, if someone were to have taken over the plane in the situation that we saw on 9-11 with United Flight 93, then it's your responsibility to no longer submit to that fastened seatbelt sign and to try and do something about the direction that the plane is going. That's exactly what those passengers did. They agreed that they were going to try to take over the plane and redirect it. And that plane was headed toward D.C., which could have killed hundreds, perhaps thousands of people. And they redirected it, flew it into a field that was just an 18-minute flight away from D.C. And we look at the passengers of United Flight 93 and say they're heroes because they didn't submit to a fastened seatbelt sign. They didn't submit to bad authority. When the direction of the plane was starting to go into a dangerous direction, they did something about it. Wives, as you submit to the husband that God has given you, do not submit to bad authority. Do not let him steer the, the family in a path that is going to be destructive. You have a responsibility to help him to follow God's commands. Called to submit to good authority, but the wife's submission friends, is to be voluntary, never forced. And so with that in mind, Paul now addresses the husbands. Look at verse 19. He says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. So he gives them two commands. One is a positive one, one is a negative one. So the positive one is to to love your wives. Do this, do this, love your wives. Now remember, Paul is writing to the Ephesians. and He's doing this at the same time that he's writing to the Colossians. And so we see a little bit more detail in the letter to the Ephesians. Ephesians 5, in verse 25, we read, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. And then down in verse 28, we see in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. And so husbands, you are called to live and to act in such a way that clearly conveys your love for your wife. The way that you live, the way that you act should clearly convey your love for your wife. You should inconvenience yourself for her. You should give yourself up for her well-being. We should know her well, relate to her well, and live with her in an understanding way, as 1 Peter talks about. Friends, Christ did this perfectly with the church. He knew our fallen state. He knew what it took for our well-being, for him to die in our place. And he inconvenienced himself so that we may be made one with the Father again, with God. We can be restored to God. Christ did all these things for his bride. But then Paul also gives them a negative command. He says, don't do this. He says, positive, do this, love your wives. Don't be harsh with them. Do not be harsh with your wife. Now, the temptation in leadership is to demand that people follow. But the reality is that the best leaders are those that consider those whom they're leading as more valuable than themselves. And so Paul's saying, be that kind of leader. Consider your wife as more valuable than yourself. Inconvenience yourself for her. Don't be harsh with her. That's not how Christ leads the church. Be gentle. Consider the way Christ led. We see in John. So Jesus had just uh, done some difficult teaching. Okay, this is in John 6. And a lot of people after hearing this teaching, they said, that's too much for us. We're out. And so Jesus looks at them In verse 67, and he says, do you want to go away as well? He's talking to the disciples. And then Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Now notice what's going on there. Jesus is not forcing them to follow him. But Peter's recognizing that Jesus' leadership is going to lead to my good. You, Jesus, have the words of eternal life. Where else are we going to go? What you tell us is ultimately good for us. And so they don't go away. Jesus' leadership leads to their good. Husbands, your wives should know that your leadership leads to their good. Not because you're some leadership guru. Listened to the most recent podcasts on leadership and read all the books. Not because of that. But because your primary concern is consistently your wife's well-being. That's the kind of leadership you're called to. That your primary concern is consistently your wife's well-being. And so husbands, are you leading in that way? Is your leadership gentle? Is it sacrificial? Or is it harsh and demanding? Now, men in the room who are single, this still has to do with you. Because when you get married, I can assure you that that switch doesn't get turned on real easy. So practice, even now serving others, and considering others as more valuable than yourself. It's not a light switch that flips, right, when you get married. Practice sacrificial leadership even now. And so wives are called to dignified submission to good authority. Husbands are called to to be a good authority by exercising that authority in a gentle, loving, and sacrificial way. And friends, look, Christ is our model for both. Christ himself submitted to good authority. He submitted in the Garden of Gethsemane. Notice that first rebellion, that first act of rebellion happened in a garden, Garden of Eden, where Adam rebelled against God. But then in the Garden of Gethsemane, we see the second Adam, the true Adam, not rebelling, but he's submitting to God's good authority. And we also see Jesus exercising gentle, loving, and sacrificial authority over the church that he died for. Consider in Matthew, where Jesus says in chapter 11, Come to me, all who, are, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, yes, I am your authority. However, my yoke is easy. My burden is light. I am gentle. Come to me and experience that gentleness. Come to me and experience that lowness of heart, that light burden. And all who go and submit to him experience what it is to be under good and loving authority. And so now after addressing the marriage relationship, Paul goes out one concentric circle. He moves on to the parental relationship. So look at verse 20. He says, children, obey your parents in everything, for this pleases the Lord. And so similar to the marriage relationship where he starts with the one who's under authority, he does it here too. So he talks to the children before he talks to the fathers, the parents. And he, we see in Ephesians 6, again, remember, Colossians 3, kind of a parallel passage, Ephesians 5 and 6. So Paul is a little bit more detailed in that Ephesians 1, so we're going there to get a little bit more um, from what this command is. So Ephesians 6, he says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. He says in Colossians, it pleases the Lord. And Ephesians says, this is right. Now this is a reference to God's moral law, Ten Commandments, where in the fifth commandment we read, honor your father and mother. And so kids in the room, look up here, kids in the room. It is a good thing for you to obey your parents. It might not always be a fun thing, but it is a good thing. God has given you parents to take care of you, to meet your physical needs, and also to point you to himself. Obeying your parents honors them. And by honoring them, you are pleasing God. And so, I get it. I was a kid with parents. Natural question is, really? What if my parents want me to clean up my room, and it's just not time? Kids, it's good to obey that. Even little things like that. It says in the text, in everything, obey. The question could be, really, in everything? Well, remember, Paul is dealing with a Christian home. We see in the first verse of chapter 3, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above. So he's saying, he's talking to people who have been raised with Christ. So he's assuming, he's presuming, he's presupposing a Christian household with a a Christian approach to parenting. And so if you're a kid in the room, maybe you're a teen, the question might be, what if my parents aren't Christians? Do I still need to obey them in everything? Well, even if your parents aren't Christians, it's still pleasing to obey God, or excuse me, to obey them. It's still pleasing to God to obey your parents. Now, okay, what if my parents want me to do something that is sinful? Should I still obey? Well, in that case, you can't obey. Sin never pleases God, and God is your highest authority, even higher than your parents. And so if you are going to disobey them, do it in a respectful way. There is a way to still honor your parents while disobeying them. If what they are asking you to do leads to sin, you can disobey still in an honoring and respectful kind of way. Look, look the apostles actually had a very similar predicament. In Acts 4, we see the authorities in Jerusalem telling them to stop preaching the gospel. They say, stop, stop going around telling everybody about this. But they, they don't listen. They keep proclaiming the gospel. And we read in Acts 5 that when the authorities had brought them, they set set them before the council. And the high priest questioned them, saying, we strictly charged you not to teach in this name. Yet here you have filled Jerusalem with your teaching, and you intend to bring this man's blood upon us. But Peter and the apostles answered, and this is key, we must obey God rather than men. So kids, parents are a good God-given gift to you. They're for your good, and they're for you to obey. But they are not your highest authority. God is your highest authority, which means, parents, you have a responsibility to help your children obey their highest authority. And, as Paul elaborates here, there's a way in which you are to do this. So there's the thing... Help your kids obey their highest authority, God. Kids, obey the authority that God has placed over you, your parents, insofar as they're helping you obey God. But there's a way, parents, for you to do this very thing, this task. Look at verse 21. Paul says, fathers, do not provoke your children, lest they become discouraged. Ephesians 6, a parallel passage, says, fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. As look, fathers are mentioned specifically here because as the head of the household, they do have a unique responsibility for ensuring that their children are being discipled. They have that added weight, so to speak. However, I think the term fathers used here is likely being used as a broad term for parents. John Knox agrees with this. He says, John Knox was a 16th century Scottish reformer. He says, and you, parents... He's saying that this is a command to the parents. And you parents must not rouse your children to resentment. And so what does it mean to provoke your children? What does it mean, what's the difference between raising them in in the fear instruction of the Lord and then provoking them? Well, that word provoke means to, to stir up. And so a question that you can ask yourself is, does your parenting style stir up your children? Do you have a short fuse to where you immediately jump to the consequence? That's that's the thing that I feel convicted about, is that when one of my kids are not responding the way that I want them to, I just immediately jump to the consequence. Rather than helping them understand why, it's better to to listen to what mom and dad have to say. My patience grows thin, I just jump right to it. So parents, are are you short-tempered? When your kids do something they shouldn't, is your response harsh? Are you difficult to please? One commentary put it this way. It said, parents can be so exacting, so demanding, or so severe that they create within their children the feeling that it is impossible for them to please their parents. Is your parenting style one that is impossible to please? Because if so, that could provoke your children to anger. It could make it difficult for them to receive the good news that you're trying to convey to them. Consider, when Jesus was baptized, consider the Father's words to him. When the clouds parted, we saw that the Father says this of his son. He says, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. And so there's three things right there that we see. That the son is his. This is my. The son is his. The son is beloved. This is my beloved son. And the third thing is that the son pleases the father in whom I am well pleased. It makes him happy. Something we try to tell our kids often is that you are my daughter, that, you, that daddy loves you very much, and that you make me very happy. Because sometimes we can be too exacting. We can be too harsh. We want to remind them that you are ours, that you are loved, and that you make us very happy. Children can be like, like trees. Have any of you ever seen a tree that kind of grew around a pressure point, uh, where it kind of grows around a building or something like that? Children can be like young trees, where if you put too much pressure in an area, they'll grow around that, that, that very thing. And, and they may grow, but they're going to be weaker. And so if our parenting style is putting too much pressure on our children, then they may grow and they may know things, but their faith may be weak. Or they may not have faith at all. And look, the obvious caveat here is that we can do all the things right and our kids still may not have the faith that we long for them. And so trust in the Lord's sovereignty with that. But in your parenting style, do do what you can to not be provoking or harsh with your children. And so kids in the room, are you quick to obey your parents? If you can't obey your parents because it's leading you to sin, then are you disobeying in a respectful kind of way? Parents, Are you intentionally discipling your children, or do you provoke them? Is your parenting style one that leads to your children having resentment, potentially, later on? Maybe you're in the room, and you feel like your kids have already grown, and you feel like you've failed, like you came short. You you see this text, and you think, "I, I messed up. I would encourage you, it's not too late. Confess your sin to your children. Call them up today if you have to. Get coffee with them. Take them out for breakfast. Send them an email. Do what you can to reach out to them. Confess your sin to them. Be specific. Don't be general. Be specific. And don't be defensive. But even more than that, confess your sin to God. Because look, even if your children don't forgive you, you have a God who is willing and ready to forgive you. Ephesians 1.7, in him, in Christ, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. Your sin is not more bountiful than the riches of God's grace. So if you have failed in this area, if you are, like, like the song Man of Sorrow said, if you feel like you have totally failed, be reminded of what that verse says. Now my debt is paid. It is paid in full. By the precious blood that my Jesus spilled, now the curse of sin has no hold on me. Whom the Son sets free, Oh, is free indeed. Friends, you are free in Christ. You may have failed in various aspects as a parent, but know that your sin has been paid for in Christ. And then now moving on to the next set of relationships, Paul now addresses work relationships. So again, similar to the previous pattern, he talks about those who are under authority and then he talks to those who are in authority. So beginning with, those who are under authority, he talks to to bond servants. Now, Paul devotes more attention to this category than to any other category in this text, and there might be a couple reasons for that. We don't know exactly, but the a couple reasons that others have offered up is that there, there's a good chance that many in the Colossian church were slaves, they were servants of some kind, and so Paul is speaking directly to them because he knows that not everybody may be married, not everybody may have children, but Many of you are are slaves. Many of you are servants in some way. Another reason is that later, in chapter 4, we see that Onesimus went with Tychicus to deliver this letter to the church in Colossae. And here's the thing we know about Onesimus in the letter to Philemon, that he escaped his master. Onesimus was a Colossian, and he escaped from his master. And now Onesimus is going back as the, as the slave who made it out. And maybe they may be looking at Onesimus saying, you are our role model. We want to we just get out from under the authority just like you did. And he's going back with this letter in hand. And Paul is making it clear, don't do what Onesimus did. He eventually sends Onesimus back to his master Philemon. You can read that book and see what Paul says there. But Paul devotes more attention to this category than any other one for various reasons. Now, that, that word bondservant just means a servant or a slave. Now, there are different kinds of slaves that were uh, in the ancient world. Their slavery was definitely a thing, different kinds. Some people would voluntarily put themselves into slavery because they had a huge debt that they needed to pay, and they just couldn't pay it. So they said, hey, I'll just be your slave for the time being. And later on, they'd have the opportunity to purchase their freedom. Some were in it involuntarily, similar to the chattel slavery that we know in American history. Maybe they were prisoners of war. Or they were born into it. But I want to make an important clarification with this. That even though Paul is recognizing that slavery was a reality, he is not advocating for it. This passage has been used to defend things like slavery in the past, and what we don't see is Paul advocating for slavery. He's recognizing the reality, and he's speaking into it. In fact, when he writes to Timothy, in 1 Timothy 1.10, he says that enslaving someone is actually contrary to, to sound doctrine. And so he's not advocating for slavery, but he's recognizing the reality. He's helping them understand what it looks like to live faithfully in light of it. And so although Paul isn't advocating for it, he does recognize that our relationship with Christ changes our relationships with those we work for. And so he tells the bond servants, he gives them two commands. He says, one, obey in everything. See that in verse 22. And again, we have that caveat. In everything, really, even if, even if God's telling me to sin? No, not if God's telling you to sin. Obey in all things insofar as they are not calling you to sin. But that term, obey, is, a pres- is in the present tense, which means this is an ongoing thing. It's not a one and done. Okay, I obeyed that one time. Check that box. I'm good. It's an ongoing. It's a, it's a characterization of your, of your behavior. Your behavior is characterized by a habitual practice of obedience. And he says, not by way of eye service, as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. And so, look, their obedience, he tells, tells the ladies, your obedience should be sincere. Not just when the boss is looking. Your obedience should be sincere. And then he says, to work heartily. You see this in verse 23, he says, work hard. And he gives, he gives three, three reasons for that. He says, one, you're, you're working for the Lord, not men. You see that in the second half of verse 23. And then he tells them in verse 24 that your reward comes from God. And then in verse 25, he points out that God will repay everyone for what he has done without partiality. So he says, work hard. This is what it looks like to be a, a Christian worker. Work hard, obey and everything, not just when the boss is looking. Why? Because you're ultimately not working for that guy or that girl, you're not working for that boss. You're ultimately working for the Lord. And the way that you work reflects Him. Your reward will come from Him. And He will repay everyone for what He has done without partiality. Now, that without partiality, repaying everyone for what He has done, includes Christians and non-Christians. So you will be repaid for what you have done. The good news is that if you are a Christian, then Christ's work becomes your work. And so when God looks upon you, he sees the goodness and the holiness and the righteousness of his son, Jesus. He made him who knew no sin to become sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. And so God will repay without partiality, but when he looks on you, if you are a Christian, if you've confessed your sin, he said, ask Christ to take away your sin, you're entrusting him to, to be your Lord, to be the one who paid for your penalty on the cross if that's you then when God comes to repay you for what you've done he's going to look at your work and he's going to see the work of the son and there will be only a righteous reward for you but if you are not a Christian then that is not your reality, God will repay you for your sin because he is perfectly just and fair and so look, slavery isn't as relevant to us today Praise God. However, many of us know what it is to have a boss. And so, Christian, is your obedience to your boss sincere? Or is it just for eye service? Do you obey even when it's work you don't want to do? Even when you know that there's a better way to do what your boss is asking? Do you still obey? Christian, we're, we're called to work for the Lord and not for men see that in verse 23. And so is God your highest authority, even in the workplace? We don't want to categorize our, our, our walk with the Lord and then our work. Is, is God your highest authority, even in the workplace? And so if obedience to your boss requires sin, are you willing to submit to God rather than man? So when that new email signature policy comes out, when you're called to show partiality for DEI purposes when your boss wants you to alter some numbers for a report, when you have the opportunity to take advantage of a client so that your numbers look better. Are you willing to submit to God rather than man? And in the final verse there, in verse 1 of chapter 4, we see Paul turn to masters. And he says, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you have a master in heaven. And so Christians in a position of authority are called to use that authority in a just and fair way. Why? Because God, who is our ultimate authority, is just and fair. And so the way that we exercise our authority should reflect the God in whom we serve. And this is not an easy thing. It's easy to, I mean, again, this passage is so straightforward that it almost makes it difficult to preach. But these things that we're called to do, we naturally don't want to do. Because we're fallen. We naturally want to push against authority. We need help to do this. Verse 3 of Oh Great God. We're saying help me now to live a life that's dependent on your grace. Keep my heart and guard my soul from the evils that I face. It is so easy to push against the authority that God has kindly put in our lives. That authority is there for our good. And if we are a Christian, then our relationships should be transformed for. Christ. And so let your relationships be marked by dignified submission and loving authority. Ask the Holy Spirit to help you faithfully obey each of those things. And then look to Christ who fulfills each of these commands perfectly on your behalf. Jesus Himself, think about it. Jesus Himself displayed perfect submission to the Father. He went to the cross on our behalf. He said, God, if there's any way. Let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. He submitted to the will of the Father. And he did that out of love for his bride, whom he is not harsh with, but he is gentle with. Jesus is the obedient son. Kids, you're called to, to obey your parents. Jesus faithfully was an obedient son. And the father that we now are privileged to have a relationship with, he does not provoke his children to anger but he uses all things for their good he is gentle with them Jesus is the suffering servant suffering slave who obeyed in everything for our good and God as our heavenly master is always just and always fair to each person and yet he has given us his son so that we can inherit the riches of his grace Christ earned that inheritance for us Call on him today. Trust him to be your righteousness. Trust the Holy Spirit to help you live these things out faithfully. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel. Thank you for your kindness in giving us your son. Lord, this straightforward passage, help us to live faithfully in light of. We need your help by your Holy Spirit.